Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hi, this is Steve. One week ago, John and I recorded part one of our exploration of the third man, and tonight we're going to record part two. Now, normally our goal is to finish the whole movie in one session, even if it's a long session, but sometimes due to schedule, family's work, or just plain exhaustion, we just can't get it all done. But the truth is, I'm often grateful for the break because almost inevitably, my perspective on a film evolves after we talk about it. Largely, this is because John has given me so much food for thought, but it's also because of the time I spent editing the first part changes the way I think about the rest of the movie. And this, to me, is what makes the study of great films so rewarding. Because even a 70-year-old movie like The Third Man, a film I've seen many times, can still live and breathe and change each time I view it. And so today, as I prepare for part two, I'm so excited to see how my perceptions of The Third Man will continue to evolve through tonight's conversation. And for those of you who haven't seen this noir classic, I highly recommend a visit to cinephiles.net where you can buy or stream The Third Man and every other film we've ever reviewed before coming back on Friday to listen to part two on The Cinephiles. Look down there. Would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever? If I offered you 20,000 pounds for every dot that stopped, would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money? Or would you... Calculate how many dots you could afford to spin. Free of income tax, only. Free of income tax. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hey everyone, my name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, producer, and host over at Collider, and uh, also co-host of the Top 10 Geek Buddies and this show. <laughs> oh, and the deep cut over the there. A lot of conversations. <laughs> do you just, find? I was thinking yeah. just as we started. Do you find yourself going? Should I say my name differently this time? <laughs> <laughs> should I emphasize different syllables? I'll be honest. In the introduction. With you. So many things change with everything I do. I, I like to have one thing at least stay the same. <laughs> so consistent. saying my name consistently, <laughs> I'm very happy to do it that way. <laughs> I suppose that's fair. Yeah. I mean, you're going to do it over and over again. There's only so many ways you can introduce yourself. Right. I end up being like uh, Howard Stern in Private Parts. WNBC. <laughs> WNBC. <laughs> That movie is actually good. Yeah, I don't know if it holds up. I haven't seen it in quite a long time, but yeah. Um, but we no are third no, man, Steve. But we are not talking about private parts. We are continuing our exploration okay. of Carol Reed's third man. And it's funny. We uh, uh, we we weren't able to do it all in one sitting. Right, right. We've had a week off, and I am really glad we did because, because of some of the stuff that you said mm-hmm. and then because of editing the film and re-listening to things and then looking at my notes again today – my 
opinions about this film have changed. Oh, interesting. Just in the week. Okay. Like, they're particularly in terms of Holly Martin's character, and we're going to get into that. Right. There's stuff I I don't think I had picked up on before that now I'm kind of rethinking. Yeah. And it's changing the way I'm thinking about the film. And that's kind of an amazing thing. Mm. Um, where we left off, we had just had one of the greatest introductions, reveals, twists in the history of film – which is that we saw the man we were hunting, the mystery man at the center of this whole thing, the third man, if yeah. you will, Harry Lime, is alive. Yeah. And he disappeared as Holly Martins followed him in this huge square, and now he's gone off to talk to the police, to talk to Calloway. So I've always had this question. I want to clarify this with you as a man who loves this film, has watched it many, many times. So who was killed? What do you mean? Harry Lime wasn't killed. No. Who was killed? Uh, Joseph Harvin. Which is the who was in the coffin? Yes. Now was Joseph Harvin Joseph Harvin the one that was hit by the car? I believe. I see. This is what I don't know. Yes. He was killed. Right. And uh, it, we don't know. But my assumption is that they killed him. Okay. And then they staged a car accident in order to uh, make it look like Harry Lime had died, and they have Joseph Joseph Harvin who they put in the coffin. Right, and the other two guys went along with it because they were protecting Harry. Right, and a couple other people saw what happened, saw that it wasn't Harry. Heard, heard. I'm sorry, heard yeah. what happened. Uh, 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 figured out that it wasn't really Harry, uh, and then they were killed as well. Well, I don't know One that anyone. I don't know that anyone figured out that it wasn't Harry because the porter. Yeah. The porter assumed that it was Harry Lyme that died. Right. But he's the one who said that he saw that the guy was definitely dead, right. which which made the story not the same. And he's the guy who said there was a third man, which, of course, we can believe is Harry Lyme. It was a third yeah. man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, but why did Joseph Harvin get killed? How did he get killed? Mm-hmm. And what was the mechanism between... Like it could have been that they actually threw him in front of a truck and yes. they killed him by the truck. Yes. It could have been that he was killed ahead of time and they brought the body out there, then had the driver, because it's Harry's driver, yep. come around the corner, screech to a stop, throw the body on the ground, and then the three men carry him off. Yeah. It could have been a bunch of different stuff. But but the porter does say that the guy that they were dragging was dead. He yes. knows what dead looks like. That guy's dead. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I know what dead looks like. <laughs> um Yeah. And uh, so we're off uh, with Callaway and with Sergeant Payne. And, oh, here's another thing that I'm glad we had a break. Mm. I did not know who the actor playing Sergeant Payne is. Okay. It's Bernard Lee. Okay. Who goes on to play M in all the early Bond movies. Oh, wow. And I wonder, too, because Guy Hamilton, the AD on this movie, is a director of all those Bond movies. And so I wonder if he brought in – Bernard Lee, and of course, I didn't recognize him at all. It's only when looking at the pictures and seeing the black and white 1949 Sergeant oh, Payne, yeah. and then looking at M in Goldfinger, okay, and going, "Oh, that is the same guy." Wow, because they're totally different characters, right? Well, I mean, I was caught up with Trevor Howard because, of course, having seen him in Superman, oh right, as one of the elders of Krypton, right? You know, I was so consumed with that. Oh, how fascinating. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Oh, wow. <laughs> I totally remember him. Yeah. Yeah, Man with a Golden Gun. I totally remember him in Man with a Golden Gun. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Yeah. This, um, this film is blowing my mind all over the place. <laughs> so Martins is explaining what happened, and he's following the shadow, and the guy just disappeared. And Callaway is not buying any of it. I tell you, I heard him running ahead yes, of me. Yes, yes, yes. And then he vanished out there, I suppose, with a puff of smoke and like a clap of... 
zither music. Zither music. Because yeah. he looks out into that square, and in the middle of the square is this standalone kiosk, cupola, whatever the hell it is. And he walks up to it, and he opens up the door, and there inside we see a spiral staircase going down. Yeah. And this movie is about to go down into the nether regions of Vienna, into the underbelly of the city, into the dark, wet catacombs, the labyrinthian world of Harry Lime. Yeah. And as we go down there, there's something else I realized that we really haven't talked about, which is noir, Mm -hmm. film noir, which I don't think we've really done. Well, except for Touch of Evil. I was just going to say, except for Touch of Evil. Yeah. 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 Which and maybe is, Blade Runner. Blade Runner has noir totally, aspects to totally, it. Actually, that's a great point. Blade Runner is totally a noir. Mm-hmm. And I thought we would take just a minute to define what this is. Yeah. Which is, this is, it grows out of, its origins really can be traced back to German expressionism mm-hmm. and films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which I don't know that I would ever want to do on the cinephiles. No. And M... Mm-hmm. Which I maybe would want to do. Well, I had a back and forth with one of our Twitter followers about this, and mm. he said, uh, coming out of the third man, he was listening. He's like, "I get that Broca's making all these Kane references, but this has German expression expressionism no. vibes to it." And hearing you say that noir was born out of that, I have to now give that guy a little more credit because I didn't see the German expressionism. I see the noir, right. but now we're talking spiral staircases, angled shots, and my mind now, just like you, mm-hmm. had taken a week away from it, starts to change as you talk about noir being born out of German expressionism. Well, and what's so interesting, because I did research and there was mm-hmm. there's always – what's great about this, doing this show is there's all sorts of stuff I don't know. And what I didn't think about was that part of the way noir gets built is a bunch of European directors, mm-hmm. including Fritz Lang, who directed M, coming to the United States and becoming directors. Mm-hmm. And another one is James Whale and that some of the origins, those guys kind – Michael Curtiz is another. Oh, yeah. All these people who, who grew up knowing that world of German expressionism come and they they have, start filming things with these dark shadows, this harsh contrast, and we start to get uh, some of the gangster films like Scarface yeah. and um, Public Enemy, mm-hmm. and we get also James Whale's early monster films. And those two are some of the key elements. And in everything I've read about noir, Kane is right there. Yeah, Not a noir film, but in terms of the filmic technique, a lot of that gets adapted into noir. And one of the descriptions of noir is um, – that it is strange, erotic, ambivalent, cruel, and dreamlike. Mm. And as we move into the sewer system, that is the world we're entering into. Yeah. Like there's a thing of like well, what exactly is real and which way is up and which way is down and what is right and what is wrong. And we don't get clear answers mm-hmm. because everything exists within the shadows of film noir, which is literally black film. I, I find this to be interesting about Kane because you have to ask yourself, was – Wells, an early watcher of the German Expressionism stuff, did that influence how he viewed movies? Because obviously Kane is not shot in the same style as Third Man, but there are all the use of shadows and darkness and all of that is all through Kane in certain moments. Even the sharp cuts into the screaming cockatoo or whatever that is or the guy singing it can't be love those kinds of things are very sharp the screaming of the woman in the background all those little things uh kind of have maybe a little bit of influence from german expressionism which i had never thought before well i think and and, and maybe this is a broader topic but that that we like to think of artists as existing within their own silos sure rather than artists existing within a continuum of art where they draw things from. Mm-hmm. And there's no German expressionism without early 20th century art and paintings. What was Wells as he traveled around 
he was a he wanted to be a painter, right? And he has a very painterly style. Mm-hmm. And so, like, was he, he? You know, Wells, just like everybody else, is both a creator and a product of the art world that he exists in. Mm. And so, I'm, I am I don't know the answer of what painters he loved, but. His visual style is aggressive and avant-garde and mm-hmm. highly contrasty, particularly when you look into his later films, you know, Touch oh, of Evil, yeah. but then also when you get into like The Trial and things like mm-hmm. that, is that he liked those Dutch angles. He liked high contrast. He liked aggressive faces coming towards camera. Like he liked all that stuff. Yeah. And so th- there's this weird thing where you are both a influencee and an yeah. influencer, mm-hmm. you know, and I think Wells is both. Yeah, he um, well, influencers make a lot of money. He could have gotten more money for his films nowadays. <laughs> could, you imagine, could you imagine Orson Welles oh. on Twitter or Instagram? Welles on Twitter would be an incredible follow. That would be – An incredible follow. <laughs> Just the things that would pour out of his mouth at random times that would be incredible. I don't know about Instagram necessarily, but I think <laughs> he would kill Twitter. Um <laughs> I'm just reeling a little bit of thinking of that of that feed. Just the shade he would throw about oh my movies God. or directors or yeah. or, or any yeah. any idiocy. So, yeah, right. Any across. social movements or whatever was happening in the world. Oh, his thoughts on the Kardashians alone. To have Orson Welles do a commentary <laughs> on a season of the Keeping Up with the Kardashians would be everything. Because I guarantee you, we think he'd bash them to pieces and he'd oh. absolutely find something of incredible value in the show. You know, again, we're way off the top, but yeah. that's okay. He's you, in the movie. You, um, <laughs> Did we talk about the Orson Welles interviewing Andy Kaufman? Yes, you, we've you mentioned we, it, it before. It came up before, I think. Yeah. yeah, because Orson Welles loved Kaufman. Yes. Well, and how many steps is there from Kaufman to the Kardashians? Yes. I mean, like yeah. this idea of what is real and what is not right. and what are we celebrating and what is good and what is bad. Right. I mean, Orson Welles is a trickster at his heart, you know, and so I, yeah. you're right. He, that would, he would be into it. I, I, think, I think a million percent. But right now we can't find him because we're down into the sewers mm-hmm. and this is the moment where Calloway realizes that he messed up. We should have dug deeper than a grave. Cut to the cemetery. And we are exhuming what we think is the coffin with Harry Lyme. Mm. Martins is there. Up comes the coffin. We have the music as the lid opens. And we have this great up angle of Calloway and the sergeant as they look in and we see their reaction. That ain't Harry Lyme. Nope. Nope. It's, as we said, this is Joseph, Har- Joseph Harfin. Mm-hmm. And now we're back with Anna's passport and the Russians have it. And they and a whole bunch of sort of the military police, I think from the, all the different sectors, yes. French guy, British guy, American guy, are all going up past that German landlady up to Anna's place where she's asleep. She's been crying. She wakes up at the sound of the footsteps. And she knows what's happening. Yeah. She knows that this is it. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that level of living in fear. Well, also because you're just trying to exist in a city yep. that is separated into four separate quadrants. You don't know by walking into one area of the city what you're doing right or wrong in that quadrant. You might have some idea, mm-hmm. but you might not know what new role, rules have been passed or new laws. And then you walk into another quadrant God knows what's there. And so all those different things you have to combat and figure out. And all you really want to do is just act yep. and be in a play and be on a show. And you are living in this dilapidated, bombed out uh, 
apartment building that is doing its best to look like some sense of normalcy. And even the landlady constantly clad in her blankets, uh, mm-hmm. roaming up and down, like almost like a Skeksy from freaking Dark Crystal, <laughs> roaming up and down the staircase and constantly uh, complaining about how things used to be and how there used to be respect. Yeah. And she used to have this kind of power as a landlady in this in this universe and not anymore. Well, and she's this woman who's been through the, a war yes. and survived it. We don't know what it was like and what she had to do to survive or what pain she experienced. Right. She found a protector. The protector brought her papers. Yeah. The protector is gone. The papers she knew were flawed and yeah. forged. The papers have been taken. It's a ticking clock. Mm-hmm. you know. And what is your protection? If you are not a documented person living in this world, what is your protection? And now we've seen her protection is up. And they all come in and there's just great looks from her. Mm -hmm. And she goes, "Okay, I'll go get my clothes. And I love how they handle her changing. It's a totally minor thing. Yeah. But normally you would expect that she would go to another room, but there is no other room. And so she goes into the shadows. And the implication is is she has nowhere else to change. She has to change right in front of them. Yeah. But we can't see her because it's in the shadows. And there's almost a moment where I go, wait, is she going to run? Is she going to escape? Mm. But then she comes out of the shadows fully dressed. And most actors will tell you we've undressed and dressed in front of strangers all the time. Oh, yeah. That's the job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember the first like kind of professional acting job I had Mm. uh, in a play and it was 12 actors in one changing room. Yeah. You know, men and women. And it was like – and we were sweaty and we had costume changes and this is – and some of them were revealing and that was the job. That's the job. (laughs) Because you got to go back out on stage in a second and go do the next scene. There's no place to do it. Be a peeping Tom. I love, by the way, as they take her off to police headquarters, that the Frenchman gives her lipstick. Yes. It's a nice little touch. Of course. He's French. At at headquarters, Martin sees her get brought in, tries to talk to her, is trying to say that he's seen Harry Lyme, that he's alive. And there is a look from Anna and Calloway sees them. I don't think he's happy that Martin's is blowing the fact that Lyme is alive. Now then, Miss Schmidt, I'm not interested in your forged papers. That's purely a Russian case. When did you last see Lyme? And now he wants the truth because now, look, if Harry Lyme's alive, maybe she knew about it. Yeah. And they know he's in the Russian sector. And they go, OK, tell me where he is. In a few minutes, Colonel Brodsky will be questioning you about your papers. Tell me where Lyme is. I don't know. If you help me, I am prepared to help you. It's interesting how this movie plays with honor and loyalty. Because Martin should be loyal to Harry Lyme. It's his, quote unquote, best friend. Right. Anna actually is the one who is loyal to him. Mm -hmm. She doesn't give up anything. Well, sure, but she's also a new person in Harry's life, whereas Martin's has been in Harry's life for quite some time. Yeah. And is aware of the shenanigans maybe Harry has pulled in the past. Yeah. But her response is, I wish he was dead because Mm -hmm. then he'd be safe from all of you. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game. Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? 
free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. So Martins goes to find Kurtz and he goes up to the house. And I think this proves the idea that him and Dr. Winkler are a couple because Kurt says, come on upstairs. And he goes, oh, uh, Winkler, you know, he's here. And who comes out on the little balcony? But there's Dr. Winkler with him. Right. But (laughs) Martins is not going upstairs. (laughs) He might be dumb. Yeah. (laughs) But he knows enough not to go upstairs. Like good fellas. Right in there, Karen. The dress is right in there. (laughs) Go right in there. No, just go in. (laughs) <laughs> that scene is so painful oh, and yeah. creepy. Um, um, and he goes, no, I want to talk to Harry. And he goes, I'm going to go wait for him under that Ferris wheel. And he does it loudly. Oh, yeah. Because he wants everyone to know and he wants to let them know that he will reveal everything about Harry if Harry doesn't make himself yep. known. He's tired of games. Yep. And so uh, there's a look between Kurtz and Dr. Vinkler. And Martins walks off to that uh, Ferris wheel. We have an amazing shot, low angle, with Martins in the foreground and that big Ferris wheel in the background. It just looks so cool. It really does. And then we see, in the distance, a figure walking towards us. Can I stop for a second? This is incredible for two reasons. One, all I thought about, because I'm in 2019 and I'm a sad son of a bitch, is how long he must have waited sitting there. What was it like before (laughs) phones to just sit there and wait for someone and be lost in your own thoughts and wonder what you're going to do and think about all the things you're going to say to Harry. And then just when maybe you've got it all squared away or you think you're, you've are you got it all handled, you look up and here he comes in this fantastically great long black coat and hat to come confront you. Again, this is a total digression, but you made me think of it. Is I've been thinking a lot about how – through all of human history, yeah. see, I told you, digression, yeah. all right. <laughs> is that basically we were alone most of the time. So if you were a farmer, you're working in the field, you hear no voices all day. Maybe your kids come up, maybe your wife comes up, maybe you're working with a friend. But most of the time, you're not really hearing anything. Um, and that is all day, every day. And you probably weren't literate. You probably didn't you know, have books. There was no radio. There was yeah. no nothing like that. Today – Hardly a moment goes by that we don't have input. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. whether it's the pod, the headphones I constantly have in my head, listening to lectures or podcasts or books, or uh, looking at Twitter feeds and Instagram feeds, it's constant, constant input. And I actually believe, I bet our brains are fundamentally different. Yeah, you know, because of just that constant, constant chatter that's mm-hmm. going on. And I also think, I'm sure you've had the moment where you were. Basically sitting under a Ferris wheel having to wait and you didn't have a phone. You didn't have anything. Oh, yeah. And your brain goes, what do I do? Right. 
what do I think about? And then your brain gets lost in thoughts. Yeah. I think it naturally adapts to whatever situation you're in, but I think it has that moment of like, what the hell what do, do I, I do? do? I have nothing to fill up the time. <laughs> exactly. I, have you also had the thing, because I have, is that when I let myself brain get lost in thoughts, good stuff usually comes up. Yeah. Like, oh, I should turn, I need to turn off the inputs. Yeah. You know, like normally before we record a podcast, when I, I drove over here, I didn't have a podcast on because mm-hmm. I want to let my brain get lost in thought. Yeah. Uh, but... Martin is not lost in thought because up has walked Harry Lyon. Hello, how are you? Hello, Harry. I love that he comes up charming as all get out Mm -hmm. and he goes to shake his hand. Nope. Yeah. Nothing doing. And this shot is so reminiscent because it's shot from below them. It's so reminiscent of the shot in the the campaign headquarters. Mm. Where is it? You want the public just to love you as a gift, you know, as a, a yeah. gift of service or whatever it is. Um, the, it feels just like that. Once again, here is someone swaggering back into the world yeah. who thinks he can control the situation, but Joseph Cotton knows better. His character, Holly Martin, he knows better. He's ready to call him out on uh, the pavement for what he's done. Who's more fun to hang out with, Harry Long? Or Charles Foster Kane? Ooh, good question. What year of Charles Foster Kane? <laughs> that is exactly the right question. <laughs> Let's say it's young. Oh, by far, Charles Foster Kane when he's young. Uh, I think Harry Lyme is a trickster from day one. He's a huckster from day one. Maybe the most... I know people like to think that Charles Foster Kane is the most Orson Welles. I think Harry Lyme is the most Orson Welles we ever see on screen until we see F for fake. Uh, I think that's the real Orson trickster, the charm, the always hustling for the other uh, to get what he needs to get done in the world because his needs overpower everyone else's needs. Whereas Charles Foster came when he's younger is still exploring the idea of having money and what that joy must bring and being able to buy who he wants and go and he wants to marry the president's niece, all that kind of jazz. And there's a difference there. It's so I'm I'm having a really hard time making a decision because because. I agree with you. The charm and the charisma of young Charles Foster Kane is awesome. And I'm sure he was fun, particularly with Leland in all those schools that they got kicked out of at that time before we meet him in the newspaper office. Right. But because I come to – I know him really well as an older man and who he is and like see the cracks and the falseness and all of the Mm. insecurity, it kind of – uh, taints that earlier picture of him that makes it – whereas Harry Lyme is just a horrible person. Right. But probably fun to party with <laughs> in, in school. Yeah. Until but he's – he's well, and it's interesting to go like who's more evil? And I think Harry Lyme is more evil. But I think, Charles Foster Kane is a really destructive – Well, that's the difference. Yeah. I think Harry Lyme is more evil obviously with the pen, penicillin and yeah. those poor children. That's on a smaller scale. Charles Foster Kane is more evil on a wider scale, on a larger scale that can't 100% be directly tied to him, but he is absolutely responsible. Well, and you know what the other big difference is? Harry Lyon makes no claims of being a good person. Right. He doesn't write out a he, thing. He doesn't have a statement of principles. Statement yeah. Of principles. He doesn't he doesn't say he's gonna like, you know, help all the people. He doesn't say he's gonna be a tireless fighter for the whatever. Uh-huh. He's just doing what he's <laughs> he's just Harry Lyme. <laughs> so we've arrived at the Ferris wheel. Ah uh, yeah. Kids used to ride this thing a lot in the old days, but they have the money now for devil. And I love that he says it's good to see you. That's great. Mm. And Martin's response? I was at your funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, Once again, cutting right through the bullshit every time. Did you notice? It took me a couple – like I didn't notice that until I was looking at this scene again today. 
Orson cuts off every single one of Martin's lines. Yeah, of he course. He jumps in. That's classic dominating behavior. It's yeah. to control the narrative in the course of the conversation. Yeah. He's never found out. Well, and uh, the thing I was thinking about is technically, as an actor, to cut off just the edge so that Martin's line is still understandable, but to have that rhythm of constantly, that is, you know, only a genius can do that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's really, really hard. Um, and and uh, Harry Lyme is popping some pills because of his indigestion. He's the only thing that helps, these tablets. These are the last. Can't get them anywhere in Europe anymore. That is one of the two main additions of Orson Welles. Mm. Orson Welles, who is pretty much banished to Europe at this point, yeah. also had pills he popped that he couldn't get in Europe. And he always asked all his friends to bring them from the U.S. to deal with his indigestion. <laughs> Can't imagine why Orson Welles would have indigestion. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know what's happened to your girl? Hmm? She's been arrested. Tough, very tough. But don't worry, old man. They won't hurt her. What do you think of being called old man? Well, I think it's a, a form of saying old friend. I think it. I 100% agree. Mm-hmm. I, I, it also seems like a controlling. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, no, we're friends, really. Also, yeah. he's diminishing. Yes. Him exactly. By saying old man. Yeah. Which means, you know, you're a prude. I know yeah. how to work this system. You're handing her over to the Russians. What can I do, old man? I'm dead, Hunter. You can help somehow. Holly. Exactly. Who did you tell about me? Hmm? I told the police. Unwise, Holly. I love how. Orson can switch from friendly to threatening just with nothing. Mm. And Martin's is still on Anna. Yeah. You don't care anything about her, do you? <laughs> I've got quite a lot on my mind. You wouldn't do anything. What do you want me to do? Be reasonable. Somebody else. You expect me to give myself up. Why not? It's a far, far better thing that I do with the old limelight, the fall of the curtain. Oh, Holly, you and I aren't heroes. The world doesn't make any heroes. You've got plenty of contact. of your stories. I've got to be so careful. Now we've gotten up pretty high Mm -hmm. in that Ferris wheel. And we hear a little bit more about the Russians is that he's safe with the Russians as long as he's useful to them. Right. So what does that mean? It means nothing's going to happen to Anna because that may be the reason why the Russians took the passport so they could have either some kind of leverage uh, over Anna or protect Anna for Harry. Right. Or that he gave up Anna in order to, to give them something so they won't come after him. Maybe. So that's how they found out about Anna. You told them. Didn't you? Don't try to be a policeman, old man. And then he says, he, um, Martin's, and this line, by the way, this is the line that changed my thinking about Martin's. Mm-hmm. There's another line in the first part that we did that I went back and realized I had misheard. So this line is, he remembers when they raided some gambling house and he says that you made a safe way out. Yeah, safe for you, not safe for me. The other line earlier, because there's a line where he says that Harry knew, a, I heard, a card trick. Right. But what the actual line is, is he knew the three-card trick. Mm. So I immediately went to Orson Welles and Magic Tricks, which is what we said in the last episode. The three-card trick has got to be three-card Monty. Mm -hmm. So what that means is, is that he was teaching Holly how to do a scam when they were in school. Not a magic trick, a scam. And this line, he remembers raiding some gambling house. Uh, Harry found a way out, safe for him, not safe for me, which means that they were running an illegal gambling operation Mm. and Martin's got arrested and Harry didn't. Right. That's what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. So this is what's totally changed my way of thinking about who I thought Holly Martin's was. Okay. I thought Holly Martin's was ineffectual, relatively neutral, probably did some bad stuff with Harry – but but wasn't a criminal. Mm-hmm. That's how I thought he was. And when he thought he was coming for a job, he thought he was coming for a job job. Mm-hmm. But 
if they were doing three card Monty and if they ran an illegal gambling house in which Holly got arrested, well, then he's moving from the middle of that neutral ring over to the bad guy side. And that he, although there certainly seems to be a moral level that he won't go to that's too far for him, I think he was going for an illegal job because when Callaway, he doesn't like policemen, right? Right from the beginning. Right from the beginning. When Callaway says, oh, he's a racketeer, his response is to dismiss it. So what if he sold some tires? Because he had run bad operations with Harry yep. in the past. Yeah, that makes sense. That tracks. I didn't. And it's so funny how a little line or a little moment, and this comes up in screenwriting all the time, mm-hmm. a little line or a little moment changes everything that happens after it. And so, and, and in this case, as soon as I reheard those lines and then thought about them, yeah. then I had to go back and reinterpret everything that I saw Holly Martins do. And this is a movie I've seen 10 or 15 times, yeah. you know? Well, that's why they're the great ones, because you can come back to them and get something different or realize stuff 20 years later yep. about a film. You just never know. Uh, this time around, like you, I told you that in the first, uh, episode, oh, the first ch- uh, episode of this thing that He's a pugnacious, obnoxious, pushy American thinking he, he knows better than everybody else in every situation that he's in. It's an arrogance. And when you put it together with what you're talking about in that he's violated laws before, he can he's probably somewhat of a semi-criminal in this way. Uh, and he's also in this situation uh, uh, possibly doing even more of it, like you said. Then you've got yourself an interesting combination of a person who thinks like he's not as big of a deal as Harry Lyme because he doesn't have the guts to pull off what Harry does, but he has his own idea of what's right and wrong and is kind of blind-spotted to his own uh, shortcomings in the morality game or in the right and wrong game. And I find that... That's why I don't, I don't like Holly Martins as a person. I don't at all. I think he thinks he knows best about every situation, and he really doesn't. Well, there's no question he doesn't know best about every situation. Yeah, he gets caught out He's so many times. He's bumbling around through this whole thing. Right. But another moment, because one of the moments we talked about him being an arrogant American is the moment where they're in Anna's room and Calloway is taking her papers and he says, don't give it to her. Don't go with him. Right. And our reaction at the time was you're the arrogant American who – but now I think about it um, and I go, oh – He's a criminal. Yes. So he knows oh, what a criminal points. should be yes. doing when the police are there and how to cooperate or not cooperate. It's an entirely different perspective. And the thing point. too is like if you have – like I'm not going to say that there are criminals who are not bad guys. But there are, but there are different levels of you know, mm-hmm. if the system is stacked against you and that's what you believe, then taking a little bit, you know, stealing some office supplies from the office, that's not really stealing. Right. You know, and and different people have different levels of, well, that's not really so bad. Mm-hmm. And I think he had a, you know, rack st- selling a few tires on the black market. Well, that's not really so bad. That was where his level of criminality lay. Right. There's other stuff that Harry Lyme is doing. That he really does think are bad. Right. And he is going to make some degree of moral choice, but it's still fraught with a bunch of other motivations which kind of lessen it and make you go, is he a good guy? That's <laughs> is the he thing. being a good person here? You, he must have seen Harry's progression as his criminality got bigger and bigger and larger and larger and had to know at some point down inside himself that this was not going to stop until someone stopped him. 
Well, and sometimes I, I'm sure you've been in situations where you had a friend mm. or a person you were acquainted with who you thought you were on the same page with. Yeah. And then suddenly – and you do a thing that's kind of – maybe it's a little naughty. Not that you haven't ever done anything like that. But sure. you do a little thing. Yeah. And you go, oh, yeah, we're, we're agreeing. This is OK. This is not OK. Right. And then your friend goes to the next level and the next level and you go, oh. Yeah. We're not – I can't hang out with you. Yeah, no, like, exactly. Yeah, I, this is not. I don't like where this is going at all. As soon as it goes to that next level, I'm out. Yeah, me, every yeah, single me time. Too. Yeah, and I've been in several situations where I literally like I'm backing slowly away. Yeah, you know, <laughs> this is not cool. I've never been in that, but oh, I, I, I've been a couple. I'm sure um, you've had, you've known some tough fuckers. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know. I don't know about. I that. would say so. <laughs> um, but right now we're still in the Ferris wheel, and. And Holly is not looking at Harry at the moment, and he is looking at the back of Martin's head, and he's moving in, and he says, Old man, you never should have gone to the police, you know. You ought to leave this thing alone. And it is scary. And the moment that Martin's turn, there's that smile again. Yeah. Um, And he says, do you ever see any of your victims? And Harry doesn't reply. And he, again, changes the topic. You know, I never feel comfortable on these sort of things. Victims be melodramatic. And he opens up the door of the Ferris wheel. Right. Which, by the way, you should not be able to do that. (laughs) It's fair. And they're very high up. And they look down at the little people. And I'm not going to quote it. I'm just going to play what Orson has to say. Yeah. Look down there. Would you really feel any pity if one of those... Dots stop moving forever. If I offered you 20,000 pounds for every dot that stopped, would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money? Or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spend? Free of income tax, old man. Free of income tax. This is the thing that strikes me when you hear that. Because the film works on just a service level for what it is. But it's also, and we know this because Wells is an incredibly intelligent man. He also knew he was making a statement here with these lines, with these words. Oh, yeah. And Graham Greene wrote this, right? And maybe yeah. Graham was saying – maybe these are Graham's words. I don't know what text from the from the novella or whatever to the I think this film. is Graham Greene. The only things I know that yeah. are Orson lines uh-huh. are the tablets and the cuckoo clock. OK. But then Graham Greene's words, this is about, in essence, why countries do what they do and send out – unnamed or send out faceless thousands to go fight wars for the overall macro thing. Right. The micro thing is me looking at every soldier in the face before I send them out so that I can feel every one of their deaths when they don't come back. The macro thing is to remove myself completely and see them as just ants or entities, faceless entities that I don't have an emotional connection to so that when they die or disappear or don't return, I don't feel the weight of it. And dehumanization is at the core of corruption. Dehumanization is at the core of what we do to carry out wars and things we try to – and things we uh, uh, explain away or rationalize in our behavior in every country that gets involved in war. There are things that we do or in financial yeah. things or spy things or uh, participating in overthrowing governments. It's all based in the dehumanization of the people that it is occurring to or happening to. And I see it all the time. Even here in this business that I work in as a pundit, studios see 
people who come to the movies as little dots. Of course. And they'll entertain them or not entertain them or do whatever they want to do because the bottom line matters more than those little dots. And that's the truth. I mean the the, the we all have flexible views on the value of a human life yep. depending on its circumstances. You know, I, I know I've said it on the podcast before, but the Stalin quote of one death is a tragedy and t- a million deaths is a statistic. Yeah. You know, it's like – if someone I know dies, that's a tragedy. If someone I've never heard of dies a thousand miles away, I don't pay a lot of attention to it. Right. You know, there are companies constantly balancing their books on how many cigarettes they can sell or how many people they can get to take their pills right. or how many or how much pollution they can have in a system before they have to take care of it or what kind of safety features they need to have in an airplane before they have to notify the, the companies that are buying that plane. And they're making and they're balancing out dollars and cents. And human life. And that is what it is. But they put those human lives into statistics rather than faces. And that is literally and metaphorically what is happening in this scene. Right. How much would you take for one of – how bad would you feel if one of those little dots disappeared forever? And this is why Harry only does this at the top of the Ferris wheel. Yeah. He can't do this at the bottom of the Ferris wheel. Martins and him can see the faces. Well, At the the top, they become – Dots. Well, the other reason we're doing this at the top of the Ferris mm. wheel is because that door is open. Yeah, good and, the, and he's not only threatening the little tiny dots right. down there. Right. He's also threatening the dot that's inside the Ferris wheel with right. him, inside the car. Because the fact is, is that Harry Lime, I don't think, does see a difference between killing a nameless dot and killing Holly Martins, his best friend. Yeah. Because I think he's a sociopath. I think he is an inch away from killing Holly Martins right now and has con- contemplated killing him multiple times before this point, yeah. although we haven't seen him. And this brings me back to the question I asked you from uh, in the first chapter was, why did Harry Lyme bring Holly Martins to Vienna? What was the impetus? What was the point? Did he think Holly would go into lockstep with him because, they, as you said, in the past. they had scammed in the past together? Did he think Holly would get the hint and re- uh, reinforce the death of Harry Lyme and be part of the scam. And this was po- the job that Harry was possibly offering Holly. Maybe it wasn't a job, a regular job. It was a job, scam job, criminal job, whatever job, a three-card Monty job, so to speak, uh, and figured that Holly would do that, would slide in and do that. But instead, Holly has a crisis of conscience all of a sudden. So... I think we, and we talked about this before mm-hmm. of whether or not Holly coming was part of the plan that was involving Harry faking his own death. And I still think that I don't think it is okay. because if you wanted to do that, he would have had a better plan for Holly when he shows up. He wouldn't have just let him show up, find out about the coffin, go to the cemetery, be talking to the police. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have your buddy do that. You know what I mean? Like you would have some – Harry Lyme is a smart guy. He is. He would have something set up. But what what you just made me think of is that – so we discussed that Holly Martins has a misconception about how bad a person Harry Lyme is. Is that – again, to go back to the thing we were talking about before, it was cool to do this level of bad stuff. Yeah. But the level of bad stuff that Harry Lyme is doing, Holly Martins can't go along with. It might be that Harry Lyme has an equal misconception about his friend Holly Martins is that he thought they were on the same page. Right. And that, yeah, we, the the – the scam of the uh, penicillin, that's just the same thing we're doing with the three-card Monty and the gambling plays. We're just one more scam you know, to make some money. And I just had – and this is a little silly, but what's three-card Monty about? It's about making you think 
that one of these three things is one thing when it is really something else. Yeah, absolutely, which is why it's great that you caught that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and uh, but also the X factor in all of this, Steve, and maybe something Harry didn't consider was that uh, Holly would fall for the girl. For the girl. Yeah. Right. And that has changed everything because Holly's whole point of confronting Harry and being in that uh, uh, Ferris wheel and possibly risking his life is to defend Anna. Right. Who is not going to feel anything for him. And we find out later has no feelings for him at all. And he realizes that only later. But at this point, he thinks this is something worth fighting for. I'm so glad you said that because I don't think I hit that as we were talking about it is that Anna under threat by the Russians is why Holly has gone yes, to talk to Martin. Of course. If Anna wasn't under threat, he wouldn't be going to do this. No. Yeah. No. Um, and then there's this moment where. Because I bet he's never confronted Harry in his entire life. Where I agree. Oh, 100%. I think he's gone along. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is because well, the thing about Martins, he is ineffectual. He is not yeah. a strong person. He does display strength in the course of this film. Right. But that is, and, you know, that's the exception for him. Yeah. A lot of good your money will do you in jail. That jail's in another zone. There's no proof against me. Besides you. And there's a look. And Martins is standing near the door. Yeah. And he wraps his arms around that window. And, and there's just this great moment of, oh. Yeah. <laughs> you could kill me. At it. We're, we're up high in a Ferris wheel. Yeah. The door is open. I should be pretty easy to get rid of. Pretty easy. Don't think they'd look for a bullet wound after you hit that ground. Yeah. That is scary. Um, and Martin says, we dug up your coffin. Oh, and you found Harvin. Um, and, and again, watch all the thoughts go through on Orson Welles' face. Yep. That's some acting. It's all there in his face. Yeah. and He's, he, he's not happy about it. No. But he steps away from the window mm-hmm. and he closes the door. And, that, and, and he says – and it, I love his – again, it's charming. What fools we are talking to each other this way. You know, mm-hmm. like, oh, this is – we shouldn't be threatening each other. We're old friends. Even even this guy whose life he literally could have taken mm-hmm. five seconds ago, he still thinks he can charm. Well, we talked about the, the, the idea of the sociopath, right? You talked yeah. about this in the first installment of this uh, movie. The sociopath adjusts tactics the whole time yeah. and doesn't think they're adjusting tactics the whole time. Yep. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Well, and a powerfully charismatic figure like Harry Lyme, they do it because they get away with it. Yes. It works. It does. That's why they do it. Um, and then this is to your point. His next line is, Nobody thinks in terms of human beings. Governments don't. Why should we? They talk about the people and the proletariat. I talk about the suckers and the mugs. It's the same thing. It is an interesting – I'm so glad you brought this up because it is an interesting thing that we do not apply general one-to-one human morality to big organizations and governments. Oh, no. That's why we have blue-collar and white-collar. Right, white collar, you can uh, rob fifty thousand old people of their money, and essentially doom, Get away with it. doom a lot of them to their eventual death because they don't have the money to support or fight yep. their health causes or whatever because you've taken all their life savings. But that isn't a number or a death that we 
can witness and process viscerally like we can a person who shoots up a, a place and kills 10 people. You're essentially doing the same thing, but one is done through almost a, a a way of manners, and another one is done brutishly. Therefore, we punish the more brutish thing and more severely than we do the more uh, c- crime of manners. And it's one of the most frustrating things in the world for me as a person who's able to see both sides of it and gauge that there's more death on one side that you think is e- that is supposedly softer than there is on the other side. And I, it's frustrating as hell to me, you know. Well, and this is and I this is why Harry Lime's a great villain. Yeah. And just like uh, you know, Heath Leather's Joker is a great villain in Dark Knight. His great villains often point out the insanity of of how we actually live our lives. Right. Is he goes you, this makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Your whole morality is completely inconsistent and nonsensical. Why should I obey it? It also speaks to why he's such a fan of Heart of Darkness. Right. It's Kurtz, yeah. right? I mean, Brando says that, and I don't know how much of that is taken from the novel in Heart of Darkness, but Brando says that in Apocalypse Now, right? Uh, charging people for murder. Oh, no, Sheen says it. Charging people for murder here is like handing out tickets, tickets at the Indianapolis 500. 500. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, yeah, because... It's arbitrary. It's so goddamn arbitrary. There is no actual uh, consistency to the logic. And it's the most frustrating thing in the world to witness and to watch and to see happen over and over again in the course and the history of our world with numerous countries, including our own. Well, and we're about to get to one of the key pillars of how Mm -hmm. we determine morality, which is Martin's says, you used to believe in God. Right. You know, well, and a belief in God is supposed to be some connection to right and wrong and sin. And he says, I still do believe in God, old man. There's that old man Mm -hmm. again. I believe in God and mercy and all that. But the dead are happier dead. They don't miss much here, poor devils. Mm -hmm. The dead are happier dead is a amazing rationalization and justification for his murders. Well, and ties back to what Anna said earlier, right? I wish he was dead. I wish he was dead. Then he'd be rid of all of you. And speaking of Anna, do you know what he's doing right as he says this? What? He is writing the word Anna on the wall with a heart with an arrow through it. What is that all about? I don't know. That moment is so interesting. I think it's a Wells ad lib, but it's fantastic. Because he obviously goes, he breathes on the glass and does that. And I don't know if that's his way of like reaffirming his affection for Anna to Martins or fucking with Martins or trolling Martins a little bit by showing him, hey, this is someone you can't have and you never will have because she loves me. Well, or he's saying he's dangling her as bait in front of her. Mm. or Well, it's just so bizarre. It is. It is such a and, – and I go – well, because normally when you do that heart with the arrow thing, it's like so-and-so loves so-and-so. Right. But he just writes Anna. Yeah. We don't know if he, like Harry's on the other side of that or Holly's on the other mm. side of that or nobody. Yeah. Or who, who knows? It is just such a weird moment. Yeah. Um, and then he – because the next thing he says is, Oh, if you ever get Anna out of this mess, be kind to her. You'll find she's worth it. It's a, it's just yeah. it's a creepy thing to say. It is. You know, it's, it's like he's kind of pawning him off on Holly. Mm-hmm. And, and again, how much does he care about Anna? I right. think he liked, he enjoyed her when he enjoyed her. Yeah. You know? Right. And now they get out of the car. Holly, I'd like to cut you in, old man. There's nobody left in Vienna I can really trust. And we've always done everything together. Everything together. Yeah. When you make up your mind, send me a message. I'll meet you any place, any time. And when we do meet, old man, it's you I want to see. Not the police. Oh, <laughs> Harry Lyme is a crazy good villain. Yeah. 
And once again, I think this is Wells. You know, you read the stuff, uh, how Wells treated certain people in his acting troupe and uh, moving forward and doing things and all the projects. You know, everyone loves and respects and admires Wells, is overwhelmed in awe of Wells. But they also mention how Wells could turn on a dime and have the charm and the sinister meanness underneath that charm all the time. And it's how he kept control of things. We we have a friend who will remain nameless <laughs> who is really good at turning or cheering people up. He <laughs> sees they're in a certain place and, and, and one could say manipulates or brings them to a different place. Okay. And with this friend, there were several times where I've literally turned to him and say, don't play your games on me. <laughs> <laughs> like I could see how he's – what he's trying to oh, do. Oh, I, I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah. I'd just be like – Stop. <laughs> Understand. I see the move. Yeah. Don't do it, yeah. old man. Oh, well, it might be something you can use. <laughs> um, and then we get it. Right. And this is pure Wells. Yeah. This is what he brought to it. <laughs> Don't be so gloomy. After all, it's not that awful. But what the fella said, mentally for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. Yeah, it's fake news. He's essentially doing <laughs> fake news. Because that's not true. There was way more created in Switzerland than just the cuckoo clock during that time. Well, and the cuckoo clock was created in Germany. Yeah, that's as well. And, and it's funny. And, but apparently there's like three sources for this that this might have come from a play. It might have mm-hmm. come from some speech. That Orson, It's not original Orson Welles. Right. What My question is, what is he saying? What does this mean? Oh. Why is he saying this to Holly at this moment? Huh. What's his point? Oh, uh, I think he's just saying that chaos – and criminality and unsettled stuff leads to greater, uh, I don't know, greater uh, works of art. I, not to be more, not to be so on the nose, not greater works of art, but uh, I don't know, a more interesting life. Great creativity? Yeah, creativity or a more interesting world than a boring world of everyone following the rules and doing whatever they want to do or doing what they're supposed to do and blah, blah, blah. He's essentially saying my world of chaos will yield some more inc- – uh, is a more memorable life than your life of following the, – or their life of following the rules. I, 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 it's, I think that's exactly what it is. I think I, it's just this – almost like this weird rationalization in other words. Oh, you know, yeah. like I'm just – I'm having fun. Sure. And now I've come up with this reason connecting my fun to Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. The greats. Yeah. Yeah, the great movements of of the world that yeah. changed art, changed so many people, yeah. And add to that list, Harry Lyme. Harry Lyme. And I love, too, that he says, so long, Holly, and he is gone. Yeah. Really fast. It's a great shot, too, of him leaving. Yeah, no looking back. Yep. We're back with Callaway, and Martin says basically, "I'm done." Yep. You know, I I, he, I agree he deserves to hang, but I'm not going to tie the rope. Mm-hmm. I'm out of here. To which Callaway says, "The Russians have identified the girl, and she's not supposed to be here. Um, and the Russians won't help us with Lime. So, yeah. And this is just putting the screws on him. And 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 Callaway's like, "Look, I'm going to get Lime. I I know who he is now." And they flash some old pictures of Orson Welles that I love. Yeah. Just like these goofy, weird pictures. That's great. And then it becomes like sort of what price would you pay? Like what are we what what are we negotiating? Right. And Callaway turns to him and says, name it. Yep. Finally. Yep. 
and we hear the sound of a train whistle. Mm -hmm. Cut to Martins. He's uh, at a fence. He's looking pensively with a train in the background. And there's Sergeant Payne, and he's guiding Anna to be to a train. He's being really nice. He gives her new papers. He's, she has no idea why this is happening. They've got a nice private little um, compartment. She sits down. She runs her fingers through her hair, and she looks out the window, and there is Martins. Yep. Sitting in a cafe, and she gets out of the train compartment. I love, by the way, the trains where they have a door for each compartment. Yeah. Those are really cool. Why is Martins there? He wants to make sure she uh, she gets off safely, and she gets in, and she gets everything that he was promised she would get. Uh, he is there to make sure it all goes down correctly. Uh, Does he want her to see him? I don't know if he wants her to see him. I don't know. Um, I think his he just wants to watch this all happen, and almost maybe for his own ego, like, oh, I took care of this situation. She's safe now. I did the right thing. I think there is some part of him. What's the point of being a hero if nobody sees that you're the hero? But if what's what? And if you, he wants the girl, yeah, then she has to know that he is her knight in shining armor. Why wouldn't he go after her after this is all done and tell her that? Because he's an idiot. He is an idiot. Because her seeing him there mm-hmm. ruins everything. Well, that's what I'm saying. And I think if he went there. Seeking that kind of validation and that conversation with her, he is even more of an idiot because how could you not know that she wouldn't get off that train and confront you and not want to do it? Because she's been very clear that she will do what she wants to do, irregardless of. Well, the she's police also been very clear that her loyalty is not to Holly Martin. Exactly, it's it the is Harry. the Harry line, mm-hmm. and so she gets off the train, says, "What are you doing here?" And then goes, "How did you know I would be here?" Yeah. And then she figures it out. Have you been seeing Major Calloway again? Of course not. I don't live in his pocket. Harry, what is it? For heaven's sake, stop calling me Harry. And he gives her his coat. And she's now going, what's going to happen to Harry? And he tries to play it off like, oh, he's safe in the Russian zone. How is he? He can look after himself. Don't worry. Did he say anything about me? Tell me. What were the usual things? There's something wrong. Did you tell Calloway about meeting Harry? Of course Harry? I didn't tell Calloway. Why should he help me like that? The Russians will only make trouble for you. That's his headache. His? Oh, Why are you lying? We're getting you out of here, aren't we? I'm not going. And she is all over it now. She knows because she didn't understand why the police were being nice to her. Why were they giving her new papers? Why were they putting on a train? And the reason is, is because Martin sold Harry Lime out. But that's why I think he's stupid if he's there to get some kind of stroke. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 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 this is really a question like, well, how stupid is he? Is he as stupid (laughs) as I'm saying he is? Or was he just, as you say, kind of just watching to make sure it went okay? I think he was watching to make sure, but he was stupid to be there. And I say that because that's the reason, that's the difference between him and Harry. Harry would have never been near that train station. Or if he was, he would have been very hidden so no one would have seen him at that train station. If he had negotiated this deal for Anna, he probably would have gone just to stroke his own ego to see her be happy or confused or whatever about this uh, uh, luxurious uh, compartment that she's going to be in as she goes away. And she's safe. He would have taken the stroke for himself. He would have never put himself in a position to be seen by her. No. Well, and he's not sentimental. I mean, That's ha- the difference. Harry doesn't care. And this is why Holly will always fail and Harry, yeah. for the most part, well, will usually try uh, to thrive. <laughs> yeah. Um, and 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 then when he finally admits it, what do we get? We get some zither music. Um, she is pissed. And she says, poor Harry. Poor Harry. 
Wouldn't even lift a finger to help you. Oh, you've got your precious honesty and don't want anything else. And he says you still want him. I was thinking a lot about character motivation mm-hmm. and morality here. Mm-hmm. Is that what are Holly Martin's motivations? Is it is any of this to do the right thing? Or is all of this for the girl? Like the guy doing the right thing yeah. is doing it to steal the girlfriend of his not dead best friend. Right. Who is still loyal to that guy. The woman who is being completely honest about what she wants mm-hmm. and where her loyalties are is supporting a person who is essentially a, a, a multiple murderer. Yeah. You know, and so the, the – and this is where that labyrinthian nature of the film noir comes in is that here we have all these motivations that are complicated and twisted and unclear and you cannot ever get to the bottom of them. Right. Do you understand how difficult – and this is the truth of watching this film and it's true in life – the difficulty you will feel if you're one of these like softer, more, more emotional, more empathetic people in un- trying to untangle a girlfriend or boyfriend from a sociopathic partner, it is a, a, a labyrinthian <laughs> a, a task because – There are so many things that hook a person to a sociopath and untangling a person from a sociopath cannot start with an outside entity. It has to start with the person in the sociopathic relationship wanting to find a way out. He thinks she's a damsel in distress. Right. She is not. In her mind, she has chosen to be with Harry. She knows what Harry is. She knows the limits to what Harry can give her, and she's happy with that. Martins thinks he's being a knight in shining armor yeah. to kiss his own ass, and he's a moron because he thinks she's going to go with him because he's the nicer guy or the less lesser criminal in terms of acts. And the truth is he's a bumbling moron, which is why she loves Harry, because Harry's a confident, driven, strong, successful person. Morality you can question, of course, but he is what he is, and that's what she's drawn to. She's not drawn to a guy who's constantly doing the right thing. That's just not going to work. Or trying to do the right thing in this moment, this or, or, or or pretending to do the or doing yeah. the right thing for the wrong for reasons the wrong or reasons. strange reasons. Exactly. I mean, you know, I mean, you know me. Like I, I'm very logical, and mm-hmm. I have you've observed it multiple times. Gotten into a fair amount of trouble when I try to present. Think I'm dealing with things in a logical manner yeah. with people who are not logical, <laughs> and going like. Well, if because in my mind, and I know this isn't true, right. if I logically present the facts in an argument that is rational and yeah. clear, yeah. that you will see my side. That is not at all how the world works. Yeah. And in particular with these people, as you describe, I don't know if sociopath or not, but people that are irrational and incre- you, and you go into the labyrinth and, yeah. you, and you think you're saying things that are make perfect sense and you find yourself completely twisted around. Oh, yeah. And you go, wait, what, what are we even talking about now? Right. What is this conflict? What is going on? How the hell do I get out myself out of this situation? Yeah. Yeah. You know, because those charismatic, sociopathic, narcissistic people mm-hmm. – they build the world that we walk in sometimes. Yeah. Like this – my ex-girlfriend was a sociopath. Like she – five years I was twisted into knots to think the little crumbs off the table oh, yeah. were enough for what – Were a feast. Were a feast. Yeah. Right? This is a woman that made me sleep on my own couch for eight months 
every night because she needed 12 hours of sleep to be able to function at a job where she went to and didn't discourage her boss from setting her up with other men so that they could get clients. There were so many little things. And then at the end, when we had our final fight, she said to me, wait, you think you're the victim here? Like, it was so mind-blowing. Oh, yeah. To, 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 I moved this woman into my house. I took care of her. I uh, got offered her a safe haven after a divorce. And here I was just so completely in the labyrinth of a sociopath who caused, who would either cry or would find a, 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 a an excuse or a reason for the things that she did, constantly think she wasn't going to succeed, and then always did. And when I sat for three days and helped her create a resume for her to get a job that she is still currently at working at now, when I brought that up to, as an example of my affection for her, she said, you just want credit for everything, as if I didn't do anything. And I was like... My God! So I, I don't want credit for everything. Just the thing just that the I did. actually did, right? But that's those are the things. The sociopath doesn't know they're a sociopath. It's, they're not self-aware people. They're just going to do what they're going to do, and you are either a means to get there or not. It's not that they're not capable of love. It's that they're only capable of love in a certain way, and they will absolutely use you without thinking they're using you, and try to be as honest as possible with you along the way, thinking that absolves them from their behavior, and it isn't true. Well, I mean, I am currently in a situation right now that I will not go into the details of, mm. where because my basic general thing is, if someone is in need, I want to help them. That's right. my basic, right. you know, nature. And there is a there is a person I have in my life right now who is in need, mm-hmm. and I am having to make decisions about how to protect myself because I know that it is exactly what you're describing, right? Which is that I will because this person has literally blamed me th- for things that are horrific, mm-hmm. and yet she's still in need. And how and what do I do? And just for our listeners, this is not your wife. We're this is not my wife. Right. No, no, no. I just want to make sure our listeners no, don't, it's a, it's a, don't get a, word for Steve Morris. No, no, no. <laughs> it's not that. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's another thing. Yeah, it's another thing. You know, it's a family thing where it's like, okay, how do we approach someone who m- might very well hate me yeah. but needs me? Yeah. You know? Yeah. That is... Well, that's the thing. And, and, and I had... I went through... Like, my breakdown in 2016... My suicide, my su- my near suicide attempt was brought on by that relationship because I had been in relationships like that before. I'm not saying I was innocent in these. That you participate, of course, and so you are sure. in a way. You have to take blame for your own participation. But um, untangling the wires took two psychiatrists to help me figure out why I was connecting certain thoughts that would lead me into the same pattern over and over and over again. And it is it, – it, when we finally figured it out, it was such a mind-blowing thing to understand. And you can't see it because you're so deep into it. Well, our worlds are literally created by the circumstances in which we live. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like that just – you get to a certain point where up is down and down is up. Yeah. You know, and that's just – and you don't realize like, oh, all of these behaviors are because I was adapting to this crazy person that's yeah. in my life. Yes. You know. Who doesn't know – they're a crazy person. No, they think they're being perfectly rational, Absolutely. and it's all you. Yes, and it's. And why do you want you. credit for that, John? <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, it's so true. I, if anyone is in, listening to us and feels like they're in some kind of uh, relationship with someone who is sociopathic, for the love of God, please. I'm not Holly Martin's. I'm not trying to put you on a train and save you. I'm trying to tell you, 
find a way out. Go to a therapist. Figure it out. Try to untangle yourself. It will hurt. It will be so difficult. You, you, but you have to do it. It's like pulling the thing out of the matrix, pulling the thing out oh, of Jesus. your throat. It's what it is. You, you, you know what? Just You just made me think of another th- another epiphany about mm. this film. Anna. Yes. She is in a relationship with a crazy person. Yes, she so is. So we might talk about the fact that she's strong. She's very clear about her loyalty, very clear about what she wants. But in fact, she is in love with a person who doesn't care about her. Right. Who would sell her out in a second. Who basically thinks of her as one of the dots. Right. An attractive dot that he enjoys. He says to Martins, you know, she's a lot of fun, which I'm sure she is. Right. But like – she ain't going to be happy with Harry, even though that's what she wants, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And right now, she she goes, I'm not going to be the price of your betraying Harry. And she tears up those papers. Yeah. And she, she says, I loved him. You loved him. What have we done for love? <laughs> and she walks out. And there's a great shot as the camera pushes in on him. And then it cuts to the swinging door after she's exit. And it it tilts down. And there's that coat on the floor as she fully rejects him. Yep. We're back at the police station, and Martins is done. Here's the torn papers. This all isn't going to work. It won't make any difference in the long run. I'll get him. Well, I won't have helped. That'll be a fine base to make. You always want to get me on that plane? Let's get on that plane. <laughs> and so we're driving off the plane, and Calloway says, you mind if we make a stop? Oh. He knows what he's doing. Oh, yeah. And Martins goes, yeah, sure, no problem. And they end up at the children's hospital. Yeah, man. I think this sequence is brilliantly filmed. Mm-hmm. This is the biggest children's hospital in Vienna. All the kids in here are the result of Lyme's penicillin racket. And we have a shot of Martins walking along the beds. We see a teddy bear on one of the beds. We see Martin's reaction. We hear that this is because of meningitis. We hear the zither music. We see the nurses. And we, we know what's happening here. We don't see any of it. Right. But we know what's happening because we see the reaction on Martin's face. And then they take that teddy bear and you see it thrown away. Yeah. I think it's a perfect scene, a perfect bit of filmmaking storytelling mm-hmm. without dialogue being very important where you just get the fucking wallop yeah. of the reality of Harry Lyme's evil. And it's great, Steve, because you juxtapose it with that scene at the top of the Ferris wheel with, with Harry. And the dots. And the dots, right? It's easy to be up there. Yeah. But down here is the reality of what up there is doing. And uh, Callaway works on Holly like yeah. Harry tried to work on Holly in the Ferris wheel. Well, and now the choice that Martins is making, I think, is not for Anna. Right. You know, now yes. he is actually making a choice because he's seen the victims of Harry's crimes. Right. Payne lent me one of your books. Oklahoma Kid, I think it was. I read a bit of it. Looked as if it was going to be pretty good. All right, Callaway, you win. I never knew there were snake charmers in Texas. I said you win. Win what? I'll be your... Dumb decoy duck. There's certain lines that Joseph Cotton just does really well. Yes. You know. Um, I'll be a dumb decoy duck. <laughs> and we got essentially a stakeout. We're at a cafe. Cops are kind of watching in the in hiding. The lighting, of course, is beautiful. We have those wetted cobblestones that are reflecting the light. It's cold out. We can see the soldier's breath. We see a giant shadow moving along the side of a building. And Callaway sees it. Payne sees it. And the sergeant looks out, and we see a man with a bunch of balloons. Yeah. I totally thought that was Wells, like in disguise <laughs> at one point. That's very long. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and we see Anna shows up at the cafe. Yeah. Again, the zither music is really fun. Like, that's what's really interesting about the choice of this music is it's not – you would think this is a thriller. It's dark. It's noir. It would be threatening and dark music. But it's not. 
there's something kind of joyful about all of this. And up comes this guy with the balloon and they're like, go away, go away. And it's an old man kind of drunk. This is a real balloon salesman off the streets of Vienna. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> um, and we buy a balloon and send him away. And then we see Harry Lime up in the ruins, smoking, um, looking down at the square. So cool. Yeah. And inside the cafe. How did you know I was here anyway? From Kurtz. They've just been arrested. And Payne is heading over to the cafe. And Harry enters the cafe from the back. And Anna says... What's your price this time? No price, Anna. Honest, sensible, sober, harmless Holly Martins. Holly. What a silly name. You must feel very proud to be a police informer. And there's a great reaction from Orson. Harry, get away. The police are outside. And Payne sees him and Harry runs and the alarm is sounded and now we're into the chase. Yep. Sheriff! The bank! There are dogs. Harry runs down some alleyway through some ruins, pulls up that sewer grate and goes down into the sewer. And this is just – the visuals in this sewer are just astounding. I love it. Some of them are the real sewers in Vienna. Some of them they built at Shepperton. They actually built these? Yeah. Wow. And I don't know. I know the big, the big, huge room is actually at Vienna. Yeah, right. But I don't know which ones are built and which are not built. And this is where this is actually the beginning of the shoot. And this is where Orson Welles was no show. So they were like in the sewers, going, "Well, what are we going to shoot?" And I think part of what makes this scene so good is they just said, "Well, here's a cool shot. Here's a cool shot." And they had Guy Hamilton dressed in Orson's coat running around in the mm-hmm. distance, and they came up with so many shots. It is so such a cool chase sequence. It looks great. It does. Yeah. Harry's running through the water. We have all these uh, uh, canted angles in the tunnel. He's running in big spaces and small spaces. Holly comes down there. We hear gunshots. We don't know what's going on. More police are arriving on top. They come into the sewers with these huge lights, which again cast these great uh, shadows. Harry is hiding. Here's the thing that's interesting to me. Yeah. Harry Lime is so cool Mm -hmm. and so smart that I always feel like he could get away. You know what I mean? I think the betrayal, I think the giveaway that Harry knows he's in over his head is in the cafe. When Mm. Anna says, Harry, the police, Wells' face turns Mm. from one of fear. Oh, yeah. And his hair all of a sudden becomes flopped and longer. Yeah. There's a desperation and a sweatiness to him. Yeah. Yeah. Because he gets it. He's been able to get away with his charm, blah, blah, blah. But now everybody's after him. And if everybody's after him, he really has nowhere to go, especially because they've arrested his two buddies. That's right. He runs up another staircase to try to get out through a grate, but, oh, there's a whole bunch of police right above him. He goes through these cramped tunnels. We see these guys with these big flares, big shadows. Again, they can't find him. He goes down under behind like a waterfall through the sewer. Quick cuts of people looking around. He turns in the center of one tunnel, jumps off this sort of ledge, goes down below, and he goes up another ladder. Nope, a whole bunch of cops right up above him. One of the really important things in constructing a good chase is not to be all one tempo. So it's got fast and it's got slow. It's got moments where he's running full out and moments where he's sneaking along, moments where he's quietly breathing, trying not to let anyone see him. You know, it's all of those variations within tempo that's part of what makes it a good chase. The other thing that's so good in this is sound design. Yeah. Because he's in the middle of this big open spaces and you hear the echoing voices of the cops and the dogs and the footsteps that are all around him and he doesn't know which way to go. And there's Martins and he sees Harry. Harry! And Harry sees him. Is that you? You're through, Harry. 
Come out. You haven't got a chance this way. What do you want? You might as well give up. And then up runs Sergeant Payne, trying to protect Martins, tells him to get back, and Harry shoots him. It's a great death. It's, yeah, because it's slow. It's slow and, you and still. It's, yeah, and still. Right, great point, Steve. There's no, ah, uh, there's no, ah, uh, there's just like, just slow. And, and it's, it's almost like you could see on his face the realization of, I'm dead. Yeah. And then he falls. Yeah. It is a great, and we really liked him. I mean, he's yes. such a likable guy. Because he was a fan of Martin. Yeah. Even though he punched him in the mouth for going at his... his well, he his, did that night. Yeah, I mean, of course he, he's he nice picked him it. back up. Yeah. It was great. He was always on his side and helping him uh, yeah. and jovial about it. Even with Anna, he was careful yeah. with Anna. And Harry runs down this tunnel, which again, beautifully lit, and Calloway shoots him in the back. And we don't know... I don't know if it... I don't know where it hit him, but he goes down, and then he crawls out of the space... Martins and Calloway look down at Payne, and Harry is in sort of another room, and he's crawling on his stomach up a spiral staircase, and he looks up at the sewer grate, and that is salvation. Yep. And there's a shot through the stairs at his face, through the spiral staircase. We see him desperately trying to climb up. He puts his gun down, and at that moment that Harry puts his gun down, Martin picks up Sergeant Payne's gun. Yep. Harry crawls up. Martin walks through the tunnel. We see Harry's fingers come up through the grate into safety. Right. And now we, you know, we know. And there's Martin's. And Harry drops his fingers back down. And Martin walks up with the gun and Harry looks at him. And that's when Calloway realizes that Martin is gone. And he says, Martin! Holly looks at Harry, and Harry looks at Holly, and there is a moment, and Orson Welles' face is perfectly lit, and there's a pause, Martin swallows, and the music starts, and Harry nods. We're back out with Calloway out in the tunnel, and we hear a single gunshot. And then looking down that tunnel, a man appears silhouetted in the shadow at the end, and we know. Mm Mm-hmm. Holly has killed his best friend. Yeah. That is the death of Harry Lyme. To me, his death is very reminiscent of uh, the end of Terminator 2. When the <laughs> T- when, I know, it's funny. It occurred to me as we're talking about it. When the T-1000 dies, remember all the different characters that he's killed yeah. or it's killed. Mm-hmm. Trying to, It tries to adapt or change into all these different characters, thinking that will be the one that if he changes into one of these people, he'll be able to climb out of this metal, liquid metal prison or death. Uh, but he can't in the right. end, right? Uh, Harry running through all the different tunnels is his ascent, his way of trying to find different ways to survive. The, oh. oh, if I go this way, if I go that way, if I go up here, if I go around, if I go to this. But it's all his different ways of trying to figure it out. And in the end... He can't escape. His and he accepts it. Okay. That was great. What I thought, when you said the end yeah. of T2, I thought you were going to connect it to Arnold's thumbs up. I was <laughs> no, like, no, no, no. all right, John, John's good, but I don't know how he's going to make this one work. But I actually really like that. That's Let's actually see really what you good. got, Rogan. <laughs> yeah. um, we're at the funeral. Yeah. Again. And the same priest is there doing the ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And this is a small thing in direction. But you watch that priest and watch what he thinks of the guy he's burying. It yeah. is very clear yeah. that this is a completely different performance than what was happening before. Right. 
And Anna's there, and she shows some, throws some dirt on the grave and walks away. And Calloway's there with Martins, and they watch Anna walk away, and it's like, we got to go get you to the plane. Right. Um, so we get in the car, and Martins turns and sees Anna walking as they drive by. And it is exactly the same shot as the first time we saw Anna at the beginning of the film. It's a fast-moving car shot that passes by her. It's, and it's something very striking about it. Mm-hmm. And I love that we repeat it. And Martin says, let me out. Well, there's not much time. One can't just leave, please. And they stop the car. And Calloway tries to talk him out of it. Be sensible, Martins. Haven't got a sensible name, Calloway. And he gets out of the car. And the shot is amazing. Yeah. Gets out of the car. He walks across the road. We see Anna deep, deep far away in the background. Yes. Martins leans against something. Anna is walking towards us. It's one-point perspective, which means it's got that parallel lines going off into infinity in the distance with her at the center of the one-point perspective. She's walking. Martin's waiting. She's walking. She gets closer. She gets closer. And the anticipation building to what is she going to do mm-hmm. when she gets to Martin? Is she going to embrace him? Is she going to hit him? Is she going to yell at him? And she gets closer and closer. And then she just keeps on walking yeah. right past him, never looks at him. Never looks at him. Yeah. I love it. I love it. It's so good. Yeah. And Martin's pulls out a cigarette and he lights it and he starts to smoke. Mm-hmm. And that is the end of The Third Man. By the way, Carol Reed couldn't figure out how long he wanted this shot to be. He was really scared Mm -hmm. because it's really long. And he kept showing this to people and going, what if it's this long? And then he would show them a different version was a little shorter, a little longer, a little shorter. And he made it as long as he felt he possibly could without it being bad. And I totally get it Mm -hmm. because it is on screen for a long time with just her walking towards camera. I think it's perfect. Me too. I think it's so good. Yeah. It's very reminiscent of like an Antonio Nini uh, long shot. It just stays there for so long. But the effect is there because you go through all All the the emotions as a viewer. You're like, is she going to stop? Is she not going to stop? How long is it going to take her to get there? Martins, is he going to come towards her? What's going to happen? Is she going to say something? What scene are we building up to here? And she just walks around and doesn't even stop or hesitate or or – No pause. Just – Yeah, she gives no – uh, Her stride is the exact same length. It's as if he yes, does not exist. That's what I'm getting at. He does not exist to her in any way, shape, or form. And of course, because Martin is a fucking moron, he is standing there thinking, oh, I can woo her back or I can get her yeah. back if I show him the nice guy. And it, fuck you. And she's done with it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, it's great. She's the only consistent person in the whole film. Yeah. She is exactly who she is from beginning to yeah. end. Um, in the book, they get together. <laughs> Well, I'm glad they didn't do yeah. that. So that's what Graham Greene wanted and what Graham Greene said. And he fought with Carol Reed a lot. He's like, no, they have to get together and that's what it's about. And like 10 years later, he said, I was totally wrong. I'm yeah. so glad he won that argument. They were right. They can't get together. Sometimes you have to do that. It is, it is a big hit, but not a gigantic hit. And of course, it's one of those movies that kind of hangs on and hangs on. Mm-hmm. In 2012, it was voted the greatest British film ever made. Wow. Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah. The most interesting thing, I've never heard any of these. I don't know if you have. Yeah. Is that from 1951 to 52, Orson Welles starred in a Harry Lyme radio show in England. So, yeah, I think so. I've never heard one. I used to have, like, cassettes, mm. cassettes of Wells' radio stuff. I had the Mercury I'm Theater sure stuff, yeah, and yeah. I listened to some Shadow stuff. I've never yeah. listened to the Harry Lyme stuff. Yep, I had the Harry Lyme stuff. There was so He did a Dracula. He did all so mm. much of this stuff that was there. Yeah, this was the further adventures of Harry Lyme, and I think mm. this was... 
maybe it was before he died in the third man and he was a more a, a more of a lovable scoundrel than he was a you know a sociopathic murderer of children Han Solo if you will <laughs> um so uh, yeah, I will give my thoughts on Third Man. I really like it, and I think this is one of those movies that totally for me holds up. And I have no, you know, there's some people I know that aren't into black and white films. They're not into older movies. I think this one, you will have a really good time. Mm. And 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 on this viewing, I got in. We we obviously got into some deeper discussions than I had expected. Yeah. Um, but certainly in the world of noir, the reveal of Orson Welles of Harry Lyme, the relationship with Joseph Cotton, the kind of fascinatingness of his strange, moronic, ineffectual, but heroic on some levels character Mm -hmm. and the world that Carol Reed creates in Vienna and the lighting and the cinematography and the twists and turns of the plot are just so much fun. And of course, the zither music. (laughs) The zither music is. Uh, I will say this. Uh, Like Steve, I went through a little bit of a change myself. Rewatched it again on Netflix because it's available on Netflix. Uh, you watch it again since yes, we, you watch it twice. I've watched it twice now uh, because I felt like I wasn't fair to the movie. At times, I was taking out my phone and checking stuff and whatever as so I was watching it. But this time, I watched it straight through without looking at my phone once. Uh, my girlfriend came in at one point, but like other than that, I just watched the whole thing, mm-hmm. and um, I found myself enjoying the film. I think it's about when you watch it. Yeah. To me, at 10 o'clock at night, it's the perfect time to watch right. a film like this. It is built for a nighttime viewing, in my opinion. And you can get so much more out of it and feel the environment of the film uh, so much more deeply, like you do with any noir, I believe. Yeah. At, at, at night is the best time to watch it. So um, I will say this. I think it's a fantastic film to study. If you're a person who makes films or directs films or, or want to be a screenwriter or whatever, look at the economy of the appearance of Harry Lyme. He's spoken about, spoken about. Right. He doesn't appear until 45 minutes or an hour into the movie or something like that. It's a long time before we see him. And then when we do, he is even more of a presence, even more of an energy. And then he's done. If you look at the amount of screen time Orson Welles has versus Joseph Cotton, right. it's astronomical, the difference. But yet the effect is still there the whole time. It's so well done, so well created. Uh, and it's actually a very enjoyable watch if you're in the right mood. Is it dated on some of the interactions? Yes, because that's what happens in 1949. Because it's a 70-year-old movie. It's a 70-year-old movie, so it's going to happen. But the overall point of the movie, the overall uh, concepts that are discussed in the movie are important concepts that we're still discussing today, 70 years later. This is why films are classics, because no matter how much we change as human beings and we advance technologically, whatever, the same ideas and concepts and uh, morality and uh, philosophies come into play generation after generation after generation. It's the great films that can capture those conversations and make them feel eternal, universal, and timeless. And certainly this film does that. I totally agree. And you made me, there's one more thing I want to say, which is that, and it really relates to the zither music, (laughs) which is that being bad is fun. It is. is. That is part of the, part of this movie is that there's so much fun with Harry Lyme Mm -hmm. and those Eight or nine minutes that Orson Welles is on screen, in particular the scene in the uh, Ferris wheel, yeah. Yeah. is so much fun, even though what we're talking about is murdering innocent people mm-hmm. and possibly throwing our main character out of a Ferris wheel. <laughs> and yet it's so much fun. It's why the zither music has yeah. to maintain a certain kind of level, levity. Yeah. 
Yep. Um, and so that's what we think of The Third Man. I hope you've made it through both of these episodes. Of course, we want to hear what you think of The Third Man. So first of all, go to cinephiles.net where you can stream the movie through Amazon Prime or buy the Blu-ray, really good Blu-ray of this, and then come back on Facebook or on Twitter or on Instagram or onto YouTube and tell us your thoughts about the film. Tell us your thoughts of the podcast. You can leave some comments on YouTube. You can leave reviews on iTunes. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash the cinephiles. You can reach me at SR Morris. John, where can they reach you? You can always reach me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. And uh, yeah, let us know what you thought of these. And Steve and I always have a special place in our heart for the Orson Welles films. Yeah. So let us know what your feelings are about this one. If you liked it or don't like it or think it's dated or think it's fantastic, yeah. let us know. And that's it for this week. We'll see you next time for another great film on the cinephiles. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.